This is why I love conversations of inspiration. Talking to people like Katie Emk, founder, director of Fine Cell Work. She's just literally shone a light on an entire world that I didn't know enough about. That of prisoners, the reform system, and the role creativity can play. The transformational quality and power that is within humans being creative. And I just come away sometimes from these conversations and feel like there's so much still we've got to do. How much business plays a part in so many social reforms that we need to see. And uh, yeah, I'm just excited for you all to have hopefully your eyes widened to the power of creativity to the human spirit. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Dell Technologies, who've helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Katie. It is a pleasure to meet you today because I'm really looking forward to talking about the transformational impact Fine Cell Work has had on so many people. Welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Thank you. It's an honour to be here. Thank you for having me. I need to just start with this incredible fact because I absolutely love researching my guests and I couldn't believe that Fine Cell Work is the largest, is this right, the largest employer of hand embroiders in Europe? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have actually, it's gone down since the pandemic, but in 2019, we had more than 400 stitchers on the books who were being paid to do professional needlework. Amazing. Isn't that extraordinary? It's like, what a workforce, you know? How incredible. And actually, I mean, frankly, it could be thousands, but we need to be able to sell everything they make. You know, that's the challenge, is hand embroidery actually takes a lot of time to do. Well, we're going to talk about that. I couldn't actually believe how long it takes. But I wanted to start actually with you, because I love to ask initially how you actually got involved with this idea of fine cell work. Because I read that it was about 1997 and you'd recently returned from a theatre tour in American prisons where you were involved in prison theatre, of all things. Well, I hadn't recently returned, actually, but my very first job, which wasn't even a proper job, frankly, I mean, I was basically volunteering. After doing an English degree, I hooked up with this theatre company at the Edinburgh Fringe who did improv theatre in American prisons. 
And I was absolutely kind of captivated by it. I really was. Yeah. It was had this magnetic, you know, I wanted to do it. And it was quite an odd thing to do, really, because I had to pay my own fare to get over there. They were basically a bunch of hippies with a sort of rather crazy, charismatic director. <laughs> and they toured American school bus in uh, American prisons in a school bus, which was covered in graffiti, sometimes the most terrifying kind of kind like, oh, you know, stuff yeah. that prisoners had said and... Uh, a good one was the guns ready so we can start the show, which was like an officer <laughs> in, in, you know, a maximum security in New York. It was like they had to get the guns loaded and then we could perform. So I had experience of prisons and it was formative, really. And I was very drawn to prison work for some bizarre reason. Lady Anne Tree, who actually was had the idea for Found Cell Work and is its founder, was the mother of an old school friend of mine who got in touch. And she said, can you help mum start up her charity? It was just a very unlikely sounding idea. I was just kind of rather hastily handed this kind of sheave of rather irritable letters <laughs> between all these kind of the founders, you know, the founder trustees and various prison officials who kind of weren't doing what they wanted them to do and left to get on with it in a certain sense. She sounds like an amazing woman. So she was aristocratic social reformer at the age of 14. That's quite an extraordinary woman. It must have been very inspiring to hear that vision. She didn't talk that much about her vision, but she just was such a, she was kind of an extraordinary and lovely person that she was an inspiration in herself. So she wasn't someone to kind of hold forth and pontificate. But what she did say about prisoners and prisons was inspiring because she absolutely, you know, she said prisons were like zoos and prisoners were treated worse than animals. That was the way she talked. Yeah. So it was passionate and it was honest and it was sincere. She saw people in prison, whatever they'd done, as people, yeah. you know, as people like you or I. And it's amazing how easy it is not to do that. Yes. We're surrounded by forces that tell us, obviously, with some reason to kind of fear them and think of them as different. And Lady Anne absolutely understood what we all have in common. She would say things like, um, they should be doing more sport and they should be working with animals. <laughs> and actually, you know, this is true mm -hmm. because they've been sentenced. They've been punished. Prison is a gigantic humiliation. It rips a hole through your life. It is your life is never the same after a prison sentence, mm -hmm. and depending on how long as well. And so once you're there, the object, you know, should be to enable people to better themselves. It really because basically the reason that they're in prison is there's yes. lots of stuff that's gone wrong in their lives already, right? Yes. So to make everything worse is really not going to help. So tell me about how you actually began the process of picking up the phone and contacting the prisons. And actually, how did they take the idea? It's a really good question. So my first memory of a governor is him going to Maidstone Prison. And I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know anything about needlework. And I just kind of just said what Lady Anne's idea was, which is yeah. that we could set up a, a, a class for prisoners to do needlework and we'd like them to be paid for it. We'll sell it for them. And this was a, a male prison. And the governor sat on the edge of his desk at the front of it, swinging his leg and just kind of nodded. And then just kind of, you could see that he was completely disengaged and he thought it was you know, he had no time for it. And he just passed me on to someone else who was their business manager, who turned out to be quite a nice guy and really helped me get it going. But I will also say that the guy who is now running the prison service was a governor who understood immediately how much good it would do having prisoners just having something to do in their cells, because it is soul-destroyingly boring. Being locked in your cell is the definition 
of exclusion. Imagine it is like it is the statement that the world doesn't like you, doesn't want to see you. And my daughter's adopted. And one of the advice they give about with adopted kids is don't isolate and exclude them too much. You know, they may be difficult, but actually that's going to confirm their worst fears about themselves. Do you see what I mean? And we know that if the punishment is too harsh, the child just rebels more. This is just, uh, you started, so am I right in thinking that you started this with £2,000? I can imagine, it's just a, a, a classic example, isn't it? Bootstrapping, trying to find people that believe in your idea, getting it out there, having people go, are you joking me? But as you said, this is what the governors who got it understood because boredom is what causes the trouble. They actually want people to be busy. That is the point. And that, yes. you know, when we we look at budget cuts and all these sorts of things that go on, actually what's happening is the ability to be active is taken away in their day to day. This is the whole point, isn't it? It's the boredom that can create a lot of the issues. Yes. And basically, you know, 70% of people in prison have uh, some kind of mental illness actually you know a lot of them should be in in hospitals rather than and so you think about with mental illness if you're left alone a lot it's actually the worst thing because your demons take control so actually you know it's in in mental hospitals people are given distractions they're given occupations Uh, well if it's a decent hospital and there are all too few of those that you know the idea is people actually need distractions and occupations and interaction and sociability to regain a sense of connection to other people so they experience their own humanity and their own self-worth rather than sort of sinking into an absolute pit I know that you've previously said that at this point you had absolutely no experience of needlework, uh, a needlepoint, which I I laugh at as a complete non-sewer. It would scare me even to talk about needlework because I I think I know thread and needle and these are the only two terms I know. Um, But the work that you've been doing with the theatre had shown you the capacity of creativity within the prison environment. Tell me about that. So you had a belief that you knew that this were, you were onto something before it even started. Well, you know, I just I just actually quite liked prison. I felt at home there in a funny sort of way. I think it's just because I did my first job there. I, I did definitely have a sense that people in prison needed help, you know, and that had been right from the beginning of my career. And the sewing aspect, well, you know, I was very ignorant. I basically thought sewing was like painting by numbers. I didn't understand it at all. And I was actually had quite a patronizing attitude to it, you know. Uh, you know, I kind of was sort of a bit intellectual and I was interested in books and theatre. And, you know, I just thought needlework was a bit, you know, fuddy-duddy. Yes. And so when I started, I didn't know how to sew, didn't know what I was doing. And I really did learn from our volunteers. I found these amazing women. The first one was someone who used to go to church at Maidstone Prison. And she, and I don't know, I think I called the prison. I called the, they put me in touch with the chaplaincy. I said, I'm looking for someone who'll go into prison to teach needlework. I didn't even know what kind of needlework they were going to do. And he knew this woman was an embroiderer and he put us in touch. And essentially I learned from them and I learned from the prisoners. So work would come back and it was absolutely staggering. One of the things I remember just perceiving so clearly is that needlework's like handwriting. Mm. So it's very, very individual. Right. And you could tell a different stitcher's kind of, yeah. you know, you could tell things about Their them from style. the way they sewed. Absolutely, because you think, I mean, and I still don't sew, by the way, but what I've come to understand is that there's this, as you're doing it, you're constantly manipulating the fabric and the thread. 
Do you see what I mean? It's like right. it's it's really is a very subtle thing and it's yeah. very fine and you are sort of managing it into place. So it's not just this doom, doom, doom kind of needle yeah. through, you know, it's not this mechanical That's thing That's what I at thought all. it would have it's been. Incredi- no, it's incredibly kind of sensual and sensitive. And, and the thing I really love about that is that you think about many of the people, we still work with mainly men, and many of them have had rough lives and done rough things. So I just love the idea of the kind of focus and calm and intricacy and sensitivity of the way they're using their hands in this activity. I wanted to pick up on something that you have said previously, which is that prisons could be schools for entrepreneurs. That the tradition of craft, and this is what you're talking about, this beautiful Mm -hmm. way that you've described, like a handwriting, Mm -hmm. the tradition of craft in prisons is a unique way of unlocking talent. Do you think that there's something in the human spirit that means people need to use their hands to craft as a mean of a means of communication and connection. Well, it's basic and profound, isn't it? What are what is our useful most useful organs? Our hands. Where would we be without our hands? If you think about it, the hand is like the thing that connects you to the world and other people in a way. It's touch. It's doing. I think also in our digitalized, increasingly technologized lives, that's why craft has boomed again. I mean, when I started fine cell work, needlework seemed like it was for old ladies. And then 10 years later, I was going to hen parties where everyone was knitting together, you know, and it was all the rage and people would come and give you knitting lessons. And that was supposed to be the most joyful. So there really has been a shift. And I think the zeitgeist is to do with a sense of the loss of that crafting manual experience that is profoundly human. It's like our spirituality. It's never going to go away. You know, even if less people go to church, there is still this need. It's it's part of being human. Actually, you know, in prisons throughout the world, imagine you're banged up, you've got nothing to do. You may not be able to read. You may not have any books. What do you do? You make something, don't you? Mm. And and actually in, in prisons across the world, People have made things. They've done leather work and they've done woodwork. And, and there are people who've embroidered with thread from old socks. And uh, I once met a guy who'd ma- made a, a lighter out of matchsticks. The base was made out of matchsticks stuck together. And the wick, I was like, where do you get the wick? And he's like, oh, it's a bit of old mop I found on the floor. <laughs> and I just mean that, you know, this in- what I mean is that incredible kind of resourcefulness is what prison is because they've been stripped of so much you know it really is barren and bleak and soulless and soul destroying everything is regimented you have no choice and no freedom i've had the experience of going into a room full of prisoners and tipping a bag of wools on the table and a sort of murmur going through the room just at the joy of seeing all these colors and the prisoners often talk about you know just color as lady anne would have said having something beautiful in their lives. Why don't we look at that as a basic human right? You know, the right to have and create beauty. I didn't know the power of needlework. I didn't quite understand what I did when I started doing it. But for me, the magic of it was learning from other people and the experience of this kind of innate creativity in everyone, in our volunteers and our prisoners. They were the ones who went and created you know, these sewing circles, and they worked together, they collaborated. So I guess it was about a kind of this incredible privilege of unlocking the innate creativity in other people. And that creativity is also to do with, it's partly to do with working your hands, but it's also to do with collaboration. You know, the experience, you know, the experience of working together 
is, after all, is one of the joyful things in life. And if people in prison are deprived of that, you know, how the hell do we think they're going to come out and be decent citizens? Am I right in saying that the reoffending rate on average out there for prisoners is 46%, right? Which is what you are referring to, which is if our schools and uh, had this sort of this statistic, well, it wouldn't happen. 46% failure, right? Yeah, 46% failure. Tell me about your statistics. Well, our statistics are... With the prisoners that we work with after release, we've got an only 3% reoffending rate, which seems to get, be going down because essentially in the last two years, we've not had a single reoffender. So that's 3% against 46%. The way it works is that they come and they're part of a community. They feel useful. They are well managed and very well supported and listened to. And um, they're helped with practical things in their lives, which often can be really extremely challenging. I mean, no one wants to give them a job. So their lives are very difficult and they come and they work with us and they have purpose, they have community and they have support and they do not feel like they're being judged and rejected. And that is liberating and they all talk about it. So we have a real problem, which is that when people come back into society after a prison sentence, it's often said by people in this world, it's like starting a second sentence because essentially often you've lost your family and friends, or maybe you never had any family and your friends are all the wrong sort. How do you reestablish yourself? Most people, when they come out of prison, feel like they're branded, feel like everyone knows where they've been. So you're quite paranoid and you're fearful and you've lost your social skills and you haven't worked for years if you ever had a job before you went down. So I think it's this kind of, it's just understanding how, how disabled many of these people are. They're not going to function well unless they have certain kinds of support. So we have low reoffending rates. I recently spoke to Becky, um, who's the founder of Art House Unlimited, and she was speaking of the honesty and the pureness of the artwork created by their artists that she works with. It's their form of validation. You must have seen this too. Are there any particular stories that sort of stand out that have resonated? I mean, you've been doing this a long time, so I'm sure you've got many. Well, I think actually, and that again was one of my learnings in in the early years when I was doing it. It's just, we were often working with people who had failed at school, never been praised, and suddenly would come out with these extraordinarily brilliant creations. What you would see was this kind of fearless and natural creativity. So I remember one guy, we had this complex kind of textiles design that we made into a a, a needlepoint cushion and he kind of took out some of the elements and redesigned them and simplified it all and gave it a structure and a frame and and used old walls and it became a new a new design and it was extraordinarily lovely and I remember actually Lady Anne saying that was that helped me understand something she said that's so innocent it was just fresh you know am I right in saying those that you work with, it's 94% male. What was that like that first time of going in, meeting the prisoners and presenting the idea? Because, oh yeah, I, I can't imagine, but I can sort of imagine the sort of um, the body language, let's say. You know, ha, ha, what was it like? I had actually, I wasn't that scared or freaked out by prison. You know, it's like that didn't worry me too much. But I did. I was presented with this room full of about 40 men And they were all seated. And I came to a table and I sort of said, you know, this is we can teach you to do embroidery and we can pay for it. And I held up this sample that Lady Anne had given me. 
And there was this kind of silence. And then a hand went, and I said, so is anyone interested in doing this? So a hand went up, and then another hand, and then another hand. Really? And loads of hands went up. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I don't know what it was. <laughs> I don't know what it was. I said it was the money as well. Yeah, well, money. I want to talk and- about that. <laughs> but, I mean, before that, I would also just say, you know, you know, this is a podcast, so people are listening to you, but I get the privilege of seeing you. I can imagine you bring that energy you know, energy uh, of hope, I suppose. You know, yes. you have a way that you're even speaking to me that I just think, God, you're brilliant. And they must have felt that as well. When we talk about what they felt and, and how the stories, I saw in an article someone called Ken, who was 47 and he yeah. was serving a eight-year sentence, said, originally the motivation, I want to talk to you about this, the money part, but originally the motivation was money, but it's not so important now. Each time you see the end product and how much better you have got, it motivates you to do more. I had a letter um, from a couple that bought one of my quilts. They explained that their child lay on the quilt each day and they thought that the work was wonderful. It is really uplifting just to know that someone out there bought it and liked the look of the final product and the fact that it is getting used. Make me quite emotional for yeah, him yeah. to think about a child innocently laying in his quilt. And we talk about the guilt he potentially is feeling and all of these emotions, which you've so brilliantly told us today, because, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm absolutely will put my hands up to this out of sight, out of mind. And, And this is why this podcast is really important. He said that money isn't that important now, but... This is a really important part of fine cell work is that the prisoners get paid for what they do. Why was that important? Was that put in from the start? Yes. So that was actually the genius and this sort of honesty in a way of Lady Anne's idea. Very long time ago now, like 40, more than 40 years ago, she was a prison visitor and she talked about her hobbies to people who were serving long sentences because sometimes they would run out of things to talk about. And she used to do needlepoint. And she once said to a prisoner she was visiting, would you like to learn? And they said yes. And she sent in someone from the Royal School of Needlework to teach them. And then she got this extraordinary commission for these needlepoint carpets that actually ended up in a kind of incredibly fashionable apartment, you know, in New York that was very famous, owned by, you know, the head of CBC. She got the commission because of her connections. This was a lot of money. and This would now be like, I don't know, £60,000. The carpets were sold for £10,000 each, and she could not get any money back to the prisoners, which she saw as completely unjust. So the, the, the carpets were sold. It was brokered through um, Colfax and Fowler, the interior decorating firm. And the prison bureaucracy prevented her from giving any of the money to the prisoners who deserved it and had worked on this for two years. And she was incensed and that kind of got her going. And she could see that there was potential here because this work, which had taken so long, was incredibly rewarding for the prisoners to do. And these objects were actually intrinsically very, very high value because it's all handmade. I mean, a needlepoint carpet is a very valuable thing. You know, every stitch is done by hand. So uh, the money was central and people poo-pooed the idea of people being able to earn money in their cells. And actually in Scotland, in the end, we used to work in Scottish prisons and then they brought in some rule 
that didn't allow people to work for money in their cells because they saw it as people running a business in prison, which they see as, as not right. But actually, the business is managed by fine cell work and the money they earn, it's actually not that much. I wish it was more. Is it eight pounds per week, isn't it? No, it's, no, it's not a weekly wage. It's a sort of they're paid per piece. But essentially, right. they can double their prison income, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. So an ordinary prison income is like about eight to ten pounds a week. If you double that, it means you're saving it. Yes. And you can save it. And many of them have used it to get accommodation and things they need on release. They've sent it to their families. Um, so the money is incredibly meaningful in a situation where you're also not having to pay your rent, are you? You're not having to pay for your food. Mm. You don't actually have many daily living costs. Yeah. So it's a chance to save for the future for people often who've never saved in their lives. Yes. Many of whom have never worked in their lives. It's a really important part, isn't it? Yeah. And, and we, we want them to want the money. Um, yeah. But the lovely thing is they, don't, they, they work because they love it. So isn't that great? I mean, all mm. of us want to be doing, we know we need money to live. But we want to be doing work we love. Yeah. And too few of us get that opportunity, yeah, right? Absolutely. You know? We talked about just there an extreme of what has been made. in, And, and I can only mm. blinking imagine how gorgeous those uh, carpets are. But yeah, the yeah. products themselves, I got lost in a you know, rabbit hole of, um, you know, <laughs> and certainly it's going to cost me a little fortune, this podcast. <laughs> they normally do, actually. Um, but, yeah, you know, the products themselves are totally stunning um intricate works of art require as you said so many hours i've Mm. i've been lusting over the artichoke cushion um, that i'm I'm looking at and there have been also some wonderful collaborations and this is really smart for brands to be involved in what you're doing yes Um, yes. so we've got designers like aa gill to kit kemp to kath kidson just to name a few and they've basically uh, given draw-dropping commissions which have been stunning can you share a little bit more about that like because that obviously has taken years to build to that point that brands now want to collaborate but it's quite a unbelievable process so they're they're given a kit is that right so if you're doing a commission they're giving a kit to them work on so yes so I mean the way the whole process works is that our volunteers take kits into prison at the right level for the stitcher's ability so at the beginning they do a small sample they learn stitches and it grows and you know when they get to a certain level they're allowed they can do commissions they're trusted to do commissions that are paid better and that are always very original and from the start actually because of lady anne's connections we did have links to interior some of london's best interior designers who liked needlepoint who wanted who knew that needlepoint it's actually not easy to get a needlepoint chair cover to get done so they gave us a few commissions but now it's at a a whole different level and we do have the charity the design and production process of the charity has become incredibly professional actually I mean you know really movingly so and everything is sampled before it's made is talked about is discussed like in a proper design company and the collaborations we have with people like we're doing another with Kath Kidston we're launching Uh, more products next year and it's very exciting and big designers have given their shop windows Mm. and it will be fine cell work story and it's all about the product so it's so exciting because the point is that everyone wants and this is what your you know this is what your podcast Mm. is about everyone wants business entrepreneurship to be meaningful it is Mm. a creative process 
and it's you know it's it's not just about the bottom line actually it's about putting beauty and value back into the world so these collaborations are with incredibly inspiring clever people who we've always learned who we learn from yes you know, I can imagine, because they yes. really, they really know what they're doing. I mean, imagine when I first started, it was all in my bedroom. I kept the wool in the bath. I didn't have a clue, <laughs> you know, and I just would sling these kind of, you know, suitcases over my shoulder and take kits into prison. And, you know, I thought needlework was painting by numbers. I had no idea. <laughs> so, so over the years, we have learned from other people. Yes. And so many people have contributed, actually, because they find the whole idea so touching and inspiring. We're working with our partners at Dell Technologies to empower small businesses across the UK with the tools and knowledge they need to thrive. Every week, we bring you the Small Business Pharmacy Live to help you navigate your business journey, covering a huge range of topics. Here I am talking to Faye Dinney, Head of Retention for Papier. And during this live, she shared all there is to know about the importance of using emails as a powerful business tool. Why are emails important to your business? Because I think, you know, we're all quite correctly obsessed with social media. And potentially there are people here who are not owning up to the fact that they don't have an email database. So this is their day one. So what should they understand about emails and why it's important to our brands? I think you alluded to it in your intro. Email is a part of everyday life, just as social media is. We're all in our inbox. And so it's a very important place to have a presence. And even if your open rate is a 20%, you're going to engage with 20% of your audience. Now, when was the last time you saw 20% click-through rate on an ad? on social media you know you just don't get that for those who don't do advertising on social media what would be a click-through rate for advertising on social media so you're saying like if you've got 20 percent on your email that's so good because what's the average on social ads it will obviously completely depend on your brand and your ad but if it's prospecting you're looking at less than one percent if it's an existing customer maybe 1.5 to so think of that comparison huge for the latest lessons advice and insights join me every wednesday at midday live on my instagram you can also visit holly.co slash hub for my business advice hub a free online resource thanks to dell technologies filled with content from myself and some of our small business community sharing lessons from our journeys to help you navigate yours And with a continued commitment to empower you, every week, Dell are giving away one tech in a box. For a chance to win a brand new XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies, head to holly.co slash get involved with thanks to Dell Technologies. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. Tell me about the quilt that was commissioned for the V&A and it oh, was called yeah. HMP Wandsworth Quilt. HMP Wandsworth is the l- biggest prison in London and actually in one Europe. of the in two Europe. largest in Europe, right? Yeah. yeah, so it's huge, huge prison. So tell me about this piece because I'm looking at pictures as I speak to you. It's, yeah, yeah. It's breathtaking. It's, it, it's extraordinary, isn't it? So that came about because I went to see someone at the V&A with samples of our quilts. And she was someone who's very interested in, she was a textiles curator. And I met her at an event. And 
she sort of pushed through this, actually in its own right, a groundbreaking exhibition in 2010 of British quilts. And early on, she came to me and she said, I want to commission a quilt from you. She didn't, however, say, we're going to give you the design and you're going to do it. She absolutely trusted us to produce a quilt that could be shown at her exhibition in the V&A. What was lovely was the words, most of the prisoners hadn't heard of the V&A. And then they started to realise the word got round the prison, that, you know, this was kind of special. And Sue, this one Sue Pritchard, this wonderful curator, came in and gave these presentations to our, our stitchers about kind of Henry Moore's textiles and all these really... Th- and they loved it. She didn't talk down to them at all, and they were absolutely fascinated. I think the one stipulation, I said it should be a quilt about prison life. Mm. And mm. then the prisoners kind of took off with it. And the prisoners and the volunteers together over weeks and months and months and years, kind of discussed ideas and had ideas about what they would put on individual patches to tell a story of prison life. And then there was a guy I'm still in touch with who did the kind of basic design and they decided to do the the kind of design of the quilt is the shape of Wandsworth Prison seen from above. Oh, I see. And Wandsworth is... Because it looks like a sunshine. So for those who, you know, everyone should go and Google it, but, you know, it looks like, you know, beams. It looks like a central point and then sort of beams coming out. But that's the... So that's... That's clever. That is the classic panopticon, uh, the 19th century. So you have a central hub and the idea is that officers and officials in the middle can see down all the different wings which radiate off the central hub like bicycle wheel spokes, right? So that is the shape of Wandsworth Prison. And they put that on the quilt and then they put the extra block on the quilt. And within that, there are all these patches that tell stories. And some of them are very funny and some of them are very dark. And there are words and there are images. And each image is is loaded with emotion. I mean, behind, honestly, behind each image is a novel and sometimes a tragedy. And there, there are many different things in it. There's this wonderful... Actually, one of my favourite is this guy, is an embroidery of a guy um, who's standing there and it's called Daily Dreams. And one thought bubble says beer and the other thought bubble says wife and the other thought bubble um, says roast beef. (laughs) This is the point of what you're doing because you've, even in this pot, you've made everyone very, very human. We talk about those who are stitching, the creativity coming from them, their stories. And I know... In each piece that someone can buy, individual pieces are tagged with the creator. So that stitcher basically is known to the consumer, which basically encourages the purchaser to offer their feedback and write back to the creator. Yes. Now, you've described this as the secret weapon. Uh, I've got a hunch what that means, but can you tell us what that means? Well, I think it actually expresses the connection and forges it between the customer, the consumer and the maker. And, you know, you have people in prison are outcasts. They really are. You know, they've been shunned and excluded. They, we don't know about them. We, we, we view them with fear. And, and the fact that someone writes a thank you letter just makes them feel, and they've said over and over again, you know, how it makes them feel getting a thank you letter. And one guy put it, he said, it's putting something good out into the world, mm. you know, and the, the word good there is very loaded, isn't it? It's got all kinds of value. Yes. And, and I've spoken, another thing that has struck me is speaking to prisoners with their thank you letters. Some of them, this guy used to carry all his thank you letters around in a kind of a folder and he was very proud of them. And I noticed that when he was carrying them, he was actually, uh, he was less weird to, to talk to. 
um, because he was quite an alienated character. And I realised it was because he felt more kind of connected. He, it broke through his bubble. Yeah, he talked about his thank you letters and he just he just suddenly sounded normal. Yes. And often when you spoke to him, he wasn't quite normal, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and he was just like, oh, I've got all these thank you letters, you know. And there he was. He looked you straight in the eye and he was right there and he was present. I wanted to pick up on that where you say look straight in the eye because that's something else that goes on here, which is that the process of creating these um, products, there are lots of other things that are learnt because of it. Politeness, how you speak to people, looking people in the eyes. It, it reminds me of an ad that recently played when you talk to teenagers about going to that first interview. You know, just some of the things that might not be known, but actually it's about those softer skills as well. No, it's all about the softer skills. They're part of a team. And actually one volunteer once said to me, I, I said, how do you know when it's beginning to work? And she said, when they know to, to wait their turn. Right. So what that tells you is that many of the people we work with are impetuous and needy and don't listen. So the wonderful thing is when you go and see one of our classes, and there's a whole room full of people sort of contentedly sewing, just like you'd imagine. And many of them actually, their lives are written on their faces and their bodies. You can see that there's been sort of damage, you know. You can just, mm -hmm. just see that they're not, they're not necessarily very well people inside themselves. And yet the atmosphere in the class is one of incredible sweetness and, and often generosity too. Mm -hmm. So we get prisoners to help teach each other. They support each other when our volunteers aren't there. They help organise the kits. I mean, it's all so kind of wholesome. And it comes from them. Mm -hmm. It's not like we're saying, oh, you're going to do this and you're going to do that and make sure you sew for 20 hours a week. They choose to do it, you know, because they like it and because they want to. And in, a, in an environment where so much, almost everything is taken away from you, that is, again, is, is, is that kind of entrepreneurship. And yes. So there are many, many, many soft skills and also just self-discipline, working to a deadline, realizing yeah. that we're realizing you can uh, work to a deadline and get something in on time. And I've talked to prisoners who said they stayed up all night to finish it. I had to finish it for you, miss. Isn't that lovely? You know, so I mean, I, I mean, why can't we have more of this? Wouldn't it be great? You know, have you encountered resistance to the work that you're doing from those who feel prisoners shouldn't be given these opportunities? Are there different levels? You know, I think about some of the crimes that do happen that are hideous. Uh, how do you view that? Lots of people will be talking to the air right now, trying to telepathically tell us what they think. But what would you say to them? Well, what I would say is we do work with people who committed serious and very troubling crimes. We have uh, a programme which brings out, which shows us their humanity and their will in all kinds of ways to make reparation and to do something good and decent. And if you take that away from them, that is actually wrong, you know, Whatever someone's done, whatever the crime, if they want to make a contribution, if they want to do something good, if they want to work in a team, if they want to learn a skill, I believe they should be able to. The punishment has been given. Mm -hmm. um, they're locked away. They're shamed. And people who've committed very serious crimes, when they get out, it's a second sentence. They are highly watched, highly managed, highly monitored. And people don't want to give them a job. People don't want to know them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the punishment is there. It is what it is, you know. 
I think that if people are, are prepared to work, to behave themselves, to contribute, that shouldn't be taken away from them. Mm-hmm. And, and most of these people are getting out. Would you rather than come out actually even more damaged, even or more angry, even more dangerous? And that is what happens. Yes. And criminals also get created in prison. So young people who've gone off the rails and often had incredibly bad starts in life. I mean, terrible things have happened. Honestly, terrible things have often happened to them that would just make you weep. So there they are being absolutely impossible and very bad. So if there's nothing there to give them an option, well, I can go that way or this way, then there is only one route they're going to take. Yes. So so I I sort of think the programme is open to everyone who will do the work and who will work in a good way. So you know that Winston Churchill actually was in prison. Many of our greatest leaders have been in prison for political reasons. And Churchill was in prison. I can't remember why, but I think it was, it was like the, one, a war. He was a prisoner of war early in his life. And he was a great advocate of reducing the number of people in prison. And he said, famously, there's a treasure in the heart of every man. Wouldn't it be great if our prisons were run with the idea that we want to find the good in the people in them? Find the diamond. Rather than affirm and reaffirm the bad so that that's all they can think of themselves. So you have a programme called Open the Gate and it's designed to provide work experience, formal training and employment support to ex-offenders with their reintegration into society. So some of the apprentices, and that's what you call them, have gone on to develop careers, and I love this, in the textiles industries. You must have seen some really wonderful careers develop. You know, when we say most people don't go on to get a career, what have you seen from your group? One of the things we've seen is that the longer someone's been in prison, the longer it takes them to be able to find their feet again. But we've seen long-termers who've had incredible knockbacks, um, you know, get jobs. Well, there was a guy who was in and out of prison all through his 20s who ended up training as an upholsterer and setting up his own upholstery business and doing the most extraordinary work. And in prison, what he discovered is he did these incredibly detailed quilts and the quilts enabled him while he was inside to reconnect with his mother. You know, it'd been very difficult him getting sent to prison, not once, but twice. But actually that was a way that they could talk. It was, you know, it became this medium of communication and he made something for her. Having been, I mean, incredibly, when people get out of prison, they usually get very, very depressed because they pretty quickly realise, you know, the odds are stacked against them and it's not going to be what they thought and everything's changed. Anyway, he now has a young family and a wife and a normal life. And um, we've seen people who have done all kinds of work in customer service. Um, We've had people move on to further training in fashion and clothes making. Um, There's one woman who does clothes alterations. Others have become um, cleaners and gardeners. And, you know, it's, 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 and we've got a guy who actually now he's quite old and he's not going to get a full time job anymore. But he sews needlepoint kits for a tapestry kit making business. And you can imagine that's, you know, that's something. So it's continued through his life. It's something he loves. It's something he does really well. He's a pretty isolated character. But, you know, he's got this in his life. And, and I think the thing is, it's being needed and it's being able to be useful. And over and over again, that's what they say. Uh, you know, we're all the same. It's, 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 isn't it nicer to be needed and to be useful than to feel like you're worthless? A guest that was just recently on Sir John Timpson talks about, you know, 12% of their employees are ex-offenders. Um, and he said, you know, they actually make 
some of the best employees, yes. you know, some he talks about a gentleman who was a drug dealer who um, obviously, you know, really did quite well at that as a job, um, but didn't want to, had a sentence, came out. And a beautiful story of him asking uh, John to be the best man at their wedding. Oh, lovely. The way that you yourself and let's say someone like John is looking at these people, the opportunity when they come out, the even for businesses, for society, we are missing a trick here. But someone did recognise you. You must be enormously proud because of fine cell work. The mark is that you you made it. In 2017, you received an OBE for your work in this charity over the last 24 years. That must have been a bit of a, a lovely moment, I suppose. Yes, it was. I think, though, you know, I'm very aware that I feel like the charity has been created by other people and that's the beauty of it and that's why I love it. I feel like I've been a kind of facilitator, like a conducting material for the innate creativity and goodness in other people. And so I've learned how to sort of give it structure, yes. you know, and how to understand it and talk about it. So I'm the medium. So essentially, it feels like other people. I know other, lots of other people who should have got, got the honour and got honours, you know. The people I've worked with, have created the charity as well. Well, it's all of your award, I suppose, but you're a great cheerleader. I feel sometimes the same in my award. You're just shining a light on everyone else's yes. work. Yes, yes, that's <laughs> so right. Slight imposter syndrome going on here. Yes, um, exactly. But, you know, actually, yeah. but I think that potentially some people have said to me, but yeah, but you cheerlead that. Yes. That is a really big job. And, and you know, for you, Katie, this is phenomenal. This whole interview has been phenomenal. We're coming towards the end, but a final question would be, what, what are some of the other ideas or future plans of Fine Cell Work? We are planning to expand the number of prisons we work with and we want to create hubs in prison. So at the moment we work with relatively small numbers of people in each prison, you know, like 15 to 20. And actually we want to work with larger numbers so that we have a bigger presence and a voice because in the long run we want a sort of to help with system change. You know, mm -hmm. actually meaningful work can and should be done in prison. And, you know, earlier you asked a question about activity in prison. There is all too little. It's soul destroying. They have nothing to do. A very goodly proportion of people inside want to be useful. So we want to expand opportunities for that usefulness and for social enterprise and for that entrepreneurship that is mm. in prisons and is in people. So that's one of the plans. And next year, we're doing this amazing collaboration with Kath Kidston. We are releasing a much, much wider range of products. But as I said, in collaboration also with William Yeward and Nina Campbell, who are wow. you know, very, very big and respected designers. Gosh. And so we'll be in shop windows. And we also have a garden at Chelsea Flower Show 2022. And the theme is all about regeneration and regrowth. So cast on these amazing sort of floral, incredibly beautiful floral designs um, that are all going to be embroidered on all kinds of things. I went there for the first time this year. It was unbelievable. But and so I can only imagine what your garden will look like. You're just, yeah, gosh, you've just 
energized me. Your spirit is just um, something else. And I, I can imagine what those 30 men who looked <laughs> at you when you came in with your <laughs> guys were going to start embroidery, yeah. uh, what they felt. At the end of these interviews, I talk about our journeys building things and yourself building this charity as sort of an epic roller coaster that we're on. And we sort of wouldn't have it any other way, but certainly the highs are high and the lows are <laughs> bloody low. Let's start with the low. What would you say has been one of your biggest lows on this journey? Um, well, I had a kind of very specific low that was part of a much bigger low. When uh, so my 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 talent is talking about it, you know, and enthusing people about it, and that absolutely comes from me, and you know, it is me. I'm a classic entrepreneur in a way because I'm not so good with structures and planning. I just go for it, you know. And the charity had enormous success around the time of the V&A exhibition. And literally, suddenly, um, a few hundred thousand people saw that exhibition. And the quilt actually had a film with prisoners in it by it. And the whole thing, people made, made them cry, you know, getting loads of letters back. And so we became much better known. At the same time, we became a Times charity that year. And it was all marvellous. But we didn't have the structures in place. Yeah. And the attention was enormous and it was overwhelming. And actually, we needed to create a much more uh, professional team and structure to manage what had happened to the charity, which is becoming well known and everyone wanting a piece of it and loving it. Um, and it was actually very, very difficult. And mm. I was working ridiculous hours, sort of just consumed by it. I felt like I'd been eaten whole by the whole mm -hmm. thing. And, but that was my life. And I kind of loved it, too. I loved it. Yeah. Um, and in that time, uh, and I was, but I felt self-critical. Do you know the Myers-Briggs test? Yes. You know, it's like, well, it's basically, it's this thing that businesses use and divides the world up into different types of people and teams into different types of people. And I Googled my Myers-Briggs definition. And it sort of listed who I was like. And it said Don Quixote. And Don Quixote is a madman. I mean, Don Quixote is this bloody nutty, ageing Spaniard who, you know, who tilts at windmills and thinks they're dragons because he's so sort of deluded. <laughs> and, you know, he's always searching for the ideal. And he's just nuts, kind of chaotic. So, I, and this was really at a low point, you know, when I was like, I can't carry this anymore. And I saw that Don Quixote thing and I almost just went and became a teacher or something. I mean, I just, I just, uh, lesson, I, do not Google things. Do not Google illnesses. Do, do not, not Google don't, your personality. Don't, don't it's Google. never a good thing. <laughs> and conversely, the greatest high, realising that you're not totally nuts. Or you are, but in a brilliant way? Well, you know, actually, it was around the same time that the highs were the same. And I remember we had something on the front page of the Times and I knew this guy and I still know him. And there was a picture of him holding a tapestry that he'd done for his mum. He was out of prison by this time and it said love on it. And I just remember this wonderful feeling. And there were lots of articles in the Times at that time. It was fine work coming into the world. And I felt incredibly excited and peaceful at the same time. Almost like birth. Yes, um, it know, was like, that's right. Excited and peaceful. You know, this deep yeah. sort of satisfaction and thrilledness. Mm. You know, it, it was a special time as well because it was like everyone was saying, yes, 
yes, yes to it, yeah. you know. Validation for you. Yes, absolutely. You know, for, yeah, for, that, for that all your efforts and time and all these hours and being likened to someone who thinks a windmill's a dragon. Oh, I know. That actually, <laughs> you're onto something. I was right. I was you were right. right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, this is um, just, yeah, wow. Love this conversation. It's the time of the podcast, though, now that so kindly you have written a letter to your younger self and I will remove my glasses. It's a moment that I can sit back and listen. But Katie, thank you so much for your honesty and uh, phenomenal way that you've cheerly, you know, people without a voice. Thank you, Holly. It's been a, a real pleasure to talk to you and your enthusiasm is infectious too and your understanding that you know business is all about creativity thank you so much oh i want to be a big hug over to you dear katie now that i'm a mother myself i have the urge to treat you like your own mother did i want to grab you firmly to keep you from tottering in front of onrushing traffic and lunging at burning flames as you did when you were tiny i want to tell you to drive carefully as you did when you were a young adult. I even want to urge you to wear a nightie. Your sleeping in the nude always used to upset me. Ooh, made me worry for your virginity. In fact, I want to take you shopping for long, capacious nighties of the sort that I now wear myself. Instruct you to get a pension, plan for the future, marry a lawyer and move closer to home. A happy life is all I ever wanted for you. Why were you so drawn to suffering? I look at you, my younger self, and am horrified by the risks you took, the little you knew, and your almost complete lack of thought for your own safety, or at times anyone else's. I shudder. You bowled off to America to tour prisons with some alarmingly hairy hippies in a school bus when you were 22. You had to borrow the airfare over, and you weren't even paid when you got there. And then you went and married a Canadian gypsy for his looks and you travelled even further away from home. You put off getting a proper job for a few more years and, of course, it all fell apart. I could have told you he wasn't trustworthy. I told you he was evasive. Why didn't you listen to your heart? But as I write this, my heart aches with the memory of all that you used to be. The six-year-old marching home up a dark lane because she was too impatient to wait for her father's car. The ragtag girl always up for a dare, jumping from first floor windows, always climbing up trees on scaffolding on roofs, and your triumph when you were mistakenly arrested for cat burglum on one of those rooftop escapades. You were fearless and you were willing. Most of all, willing to go anywhere you were warned away from. A no trespassing sign was to you an invitation. And so it was with prisons. You wanted to find out about the dark side of life. You fled your privileged world. You wanted to discover things. You wanted a larger purpose. You felt that life was about mission, about reconciling differences and inequality. And you believed in the good in everyone, partly because you hadn't yet discovered the darkness in yourself. You discovered that it wasn't some mysterious otherness that took people to the dark side and that prisons weren't alien and different at all. They were places you learned to recognize filled with emotions you learn to recognise in yourself and in us all. I can now see that being a bit bonkers was also being a bit courageous. 
But there was unparalleled freedom in all that startup loneliness, the freedom of taking new directions and untraveled paths with unexpected meetings along the way, encounters that can change you forever. It's like making up a song on a walk. It's how things get created. It's saying yes to the universe with all its beauty and potential. So, and now I'm thinking of my own daughter too, who's only 11 and who expends a lot of energy on trying to get out of things that I want her to do. When I asked her what she'd say to herself in a lesson like this, she said, stop being a twat. And stop falling for older gay movie actors. (laughs) I'd say... (laughs) Don't be afraid to feel and show love. Learn to trust yourself as well as others. Learn to listen. Always bother, even when you don't feel like it. Making the effort with other people is what rewards you and makes you whole. It hurts too, but don't live your life to avoid pain. It's how we learn. It's part of the truth of life, bumping up against hard objects. It's how we discover our limits and our strengths. Let go of all that small-town snobbery you were brought up with. Get beyond the clichés and the stereotypes to find what we all share and what we all long for rather than what divides us. Seek connection, affirmation. People are teeming with potential they usually haven't the confidence to realise. And so are you. Have the courage to keep trying things out. With each new endeavour, you'll find a new self. It's amazing. And learn to be a comfort to others. If there's one thing you've learned from your own times of loneliness and loss, it's just what the kindness of others means. Give it back. It's like sunshine and air. It's how we breathe and it helps us grow. Most of all, and for you perhaps hardest of all, learn to take care of yourself. Fearlessly, give your heart to your work, to people and to the things you truly love. Oh, I didn't... Crikey, I'm I'm lost in a. I, I feel like I've just sort of been in a a beautiful book, and I'm listening to the author to read something just so beautifully funny and profound. And you know, you, you talk about sharing, and that's what you've done with us today. You've shared this hidden world, really, to majority of us. And that's your life's work. And you've shared it so eloquently and brilliantly and funnily and everything. And I just, I'm going to read that, listen to that letter over and over again. I can imagine Lady Anne Tree would be hugely proud of you, looking down at you, just, you know, she had an idea, but you made it happen, you know, and you, you've you done this. And I, I just... Um, pretty happy people like you exist in the world so thank you so much Katie thank you so much too and you're as as infectious as anyone else I know so it's been just delightful talking to you thank you before you go don't forget to head to holly.co to be in with a chance of winning a brand new Dell Technologies XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies and if you've enjoyed this episode if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you would you mind rating and reviewing your support means the world to me it really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 